Welcome to the Washington Union Alliance Church Podcast, an archive of our recorded sermons. We're a Christian and Missionary Alliance Church located in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. For more information, go to wuac.org. Who here would say that you absolutely love breakfast? Okay. You're like a breakfast person, okay? All right, so raise your hand if you think breakfast is a waste of time. Think of you like, man, breakfast is a waste of time. Okay, we're breakfast people, okay? We've got one that just thinks breakfast is simply a waste of time. Who here, like, I, who here's saying, I love fishing? Okay, who's like, I'm a fisherman, I'm here, I'm for this, I'm doing this, I'm a fisherman. Who thinks fishing is a waste of time? Raise your hand. Fishing is a waste of time. It's okay. We can all be we can all be honest, right? We're in church, right? Uh, fishing is a waste of time. Who has ever cooked breakfast over a fire? Breakfast over a fire. Okay. Um, last question: Who has ever eaten fish for breakfast? Wow, that's a lot more than I thought. When I wrote this question, I was like, "There's gonna be nobody here that's gonna eat fish for breakfast." But here. Uh, but here we are, right? So uh, we could keep. Let's keep going down the line. We'll be here till noon. But like fried or baked or uh, grilled or um, pan seared fish, is that right? Um, yeah, we'll keep going, right? No, we'll be here till noon. So anyway, um, we better keep going. Fish sticks as well. Um, that's the. Who here is likes fish sticks? Okay. Who here does not like fish sticks? That's me. I'm not a fish stick person. They smell terrible. But anyway. Um, I let's anyway, today has to do our series has been continuing on the resurrection, having to do with breakfast and fishing and swimming, breakfast, fishing and swimming. It's kind of an interesting combination, but I'm glad you're here as we discover this together and um, <laughs> looking at the manner and the people in which Jesus has kind of come across and after his resurrection, I think it's important church that we look at this. So we've studied this. We've looked at the various people in which he interacted with and really personally interacted with uh, following his resurrection. You see, last week we talked about Thomas. Thomas appears in John 20. And uh, Thomas asked the question, did this really happen? And Jesus showed him his wounds and he showed himself to his disciples. And Jesus showing his wounds sets him apart. Jesus, as we said this last week, Jesus is inviting Thomas to believe in the person of Jesus marked by self-sacrificial love. What's interesting about Thomas is that he has shown the wounds of Jesus. He has shown exactly those wounds, those wounds that set him apart. I mean, even think about those wounds that Jesus died for you and me. And by Jesus showing Thomas his wounds, inviting him to touch him, he's saying, believe by the wounds which have been marked for your redemption. And it's significant that Jesus authenticates himself by his scars, isn't it? It's the wounds of Jesus that break that spell of disbelief. And it's this moment in time that is very significant, very personal, that Thomas invites himself to touch him. And uh, the scars of Jesus remind us that he's not un- Jesus is not unfamiliar with pain and shame and abandonment and agony. That's good news. And he knows the pain that you and I go through. And he chose to enter into our pain on our behalf. And you can trust him, church, for that. Um, it's in those scars that he purchased our salvation and redemption and forgiveness for us. And I don't know about you, church, but I want to follow someone with my life if that person went through what Jesus did. 
I mean, he bore himself on the cross. He, he, his scars and his wounds, he bore those hands and feet and then followed the one who was crucified for our transgressions. That's the person I want to follow in my life. You see, we also said this, church, that church is just not just simply for the community that who has seen, but also for the community who has not seen him yet. The person of the, the purpose of the church is also for those who doubt. And I would say this, if you're doubting, if there's questions that you have about faith, following Christ, anything, the church ought to be the place in which we, we ought to be the safe place in which we come and bring those doubts and we bring them here and bring them in community. And if you've got them, we'd love to have, you know, I'd love to know what those are. We can, we can, we can look at the scriptures together. And, um, and I know for some, it's the community of faith. Maybe it's sometimes it's kind of intimidating to bring those out. Let's encourage you to do that. Encourage you to bring those out into the open, and we'll talk about that. And I would imagine if your name is in the place of Thomas, if you're doubting, if you're questioning, if there's some things that you're wrestling with, I'd encourage you to hang out in places, in communities in which Jesus shows up. And Jesus says himself, seek and you shall find him. And Jesus is with his disciples in this faith community at this point. And we have to be willing to sit with those who doubt, answer questions, and be in community with those who doubt, who question, who are wrestling through this. Uh, because we have all, at one point or another, I imagine all of us have been Thomas at one point or another uh, in our lives as well. You see, after the resurrection, the, the people that followed Jesus had a number of different kind of death experiences. The death of faith, death of experience, they had a death of relationships. Imagine the person that they had followed for so long had just simply died. I mean, imagine all of this fell when Jesus died and when they hadn't experienced his appearance yet. And a death of expectations. The guy that they had followed said like he was going to redeem and he was going to come and he was going to save. And all of a sudden he had died. All of that fell until he had appeared. And maybe those experiences today have lined the thoughts of your heart. Maybe your experience has not been what it could be or should be. Maybe your faith has waned. Maybe you have just been completely bruised or battered or torn. Life has got you kind of through the ringer and maybe the expectations of everything have just been shattered. You're sitting in the pews today. You're wondering about the despair you're experiencing, the hope that's been lost, the despair that's coming to creeping into your life. All those emotions happen after that Easter, after that first Time, all of those expectations had fallen when Jesus was crucified and he hadn't appeared yet. And maybe today you're just asking this question, like, what is next? Maybe Easter feels like four weeks ago. Maybe it feels a very view distant, just way in the rear view mirror. And it feels like you're like asking yourself, what is next in my life? What is next for me? What is the next step? I have tried to put this all together. Kind of been a hard time piecing this all together. What's next in my life? What about the despair I'm experiencing? What about the community I'm experiencing? What about all the things, the hope that's been lost, the life I hoped for and promised? Like, what has happened? And, what, and so as we look into this, we're looking at these appearances about Jesus and about the various people that He appeared to because it's important to remember and to look at the people, the kind of people. It shows us the heart of God in these stories as well. So if you're wondering what's next, you're in good company because that happened about 2,000 years ago. So you're in good company today, and I'm glad that you're here. The Resurrection Church, and we have found this, the resurrection is deeply personal and touches ordinary lives with tremendous power. Jesus personally appeared to people. He was very personal, very present, and He personally appeared to people with tremendous power. So as we go to the Scriptures today, we're reminded 
that the resurrection is very personal and touches people with great power. We are in John chapter 21. John 21 today, it's a great story. Um, and uh, page 769 of the Bible in front of you, you can go there, John 21. It's going to be on the screen behind me in just a minute. As always, if you are visiting or watching or you are new here this morning, we are uh, grateful that you're here. Uh, we value the preaching and teaching of the Scriptures. We pray, I pray, you would find a church that does the same thing, that preaches and teaches the Scriptures faithfully. And um, uh, you can find it on the Bible and on the screen behind me as well. John 21. We're going to kind of walk, just so you know, we're going to kind of walk through this. And um, this is a great story. Um, do I say that every week? Probably. Okay. Um, that's okay. But this is a really, this is a very good story. I will say, um, John 21, we're going to kind of walk through this together, and we're going to start in verse 1, read verse 3, we're going to pick it back up, uh, so if you'll just kind of hang in there with me. Uh, John 21, this is immediately following the passage of Thomas from last week, um, and uh, so John 21, afterwards, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way, Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. So, I'm going, going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go out with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Okay, I just want to cut it for dramatic effect here. Like, can you just, okay, so we got the disciples here. You've got Peter. He's like, I'm going out to fish. He's kind of like, we kind of feel that emotion here just randomly blurts out. Okay, he's with the disciples. This is post-Jesus' death. Um, and uh, he's appeared to them. And then Peter has the audacity. He's just like, okay, let's just, I'm going to go out to fish. Blurts it out. You know anything, kind of, if you've read through the Gospels a little bit, you know that Peter's kind of a spokesperson. He's kind of blunt. And he's just like, okay, I'm going to go out to fish. And Simon Peter told them. And they're like, okay, we're going to go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught Nothing. Um, in those days, night was the best time to catch fish. I'm not a fisherman, but uh, well documented in those days that the nighttime was the best time for fish to bite in those days. I don't know if that's still true or not. Any fishermen out there, I don't know if that's true. It is still true. Okay, so we're still true. Um, that nighttime was the best time to catch fish. So that, that night they caught nothing. Um, all of this kind of sets us up here. But you've kind of, this is a bigger picture of this scene, okay? Just as we look at this together, you've got Jesus just a short time ago who appeared to disciples. He appeared to them in a locked room and he appeared to Thomas and showed him his wounds and extended himself to Thomas. And then there's this scene of the disciples fishing. On the onset of Jesus's ministry was the place in which, this was right at the onset of Jesus's ministry, this is what, this is which in place in which Jesus found those disciples early on in his ministry in Matthew 4, it says, As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were what? Fishermen, come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. So at once they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and he left their father Zebedee into the boat with the hired men and followed him. And yet, can you imagine for those disciples at this point, they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Can you imagine you grew up fishing, you grew up and you caught nothing, and everything you knew was wrapped up in this scene. 
And for, for this kind of scene at this particular moment, this is an author, he's Kent Hughes, he says it like this for about this scene for the disciples. Evening was the best time, so at dusk, after gathering provisions, the whole group left shore with an honest joy and the accustomed feel of ropes and hoisting the patchwork sail and casting and recasting the net, especially in the beauty of the deepening reflection of a million stars over Galilee. It was wonderful, the earth, the sky, the water, and uh, the, the camaraderie, but there was a problem. But they didn't catch anything. And as the night wore on, the casts became fewer and fewer and fewer. The night gets colder and colder. Conversation dwindled, except for Peter's continued comments about pollution, overfishing, the calendar, the inferior net, the land bubbers who were asleep, and the days when men were men. You see, like many well-begun fishing trips, that disciple trip was just a real bummer. Man, I've been out there one, a few times and I've caught nothing. And you just out there just, you know, just catching nothing. You just throw it in, th- keep throwing and casting your net. Disappointment was the emotion on their faces. Spent all night there, absolutely nothing. And that's what they did growing up. That was their profession. That was what they knew. You see, it was almost like failure. Failure is often, church, a backdrop for God's grace. I mean, along with this emphasis on evangelism, the picture in John 21 suggests hard work. Fishing for both men and for food is exhausting, time-consuming labor. In all this, we are to realize that without Christ's church, we can do nothing. The disciples were pros at fishing. They paid careful attention to their equipment, greater attention to strategy, and Peter and John knew how the fish surfaced, how to dip the oars quietly, and how to cast the net church and here's the kind of where I'm going with this and leading this and as we talk through this passage hopefully this will make a little bit more perhaps a little bit more sense but basically this we can know many church we can know so many things and read so many books about evangelism about telling people about Jesus about the mission of the church and ministry but the Lord says this apart from me you can't do anything we can't do anything apart from Jesus We can't do anything apart from His power. Nothing. And the call church in John 15 tells us that. And the call church to make disciples and to go fish. I'll make you fishers of men. Sometimes those fish may not bite. But we keep on fishing. And it's easy to think we can do kind of this work on our own. We think that if we're overloaded and busy, God will understand if we don't take time to ask His direction. But Jesus says, church, whatever is done... Whatever is done like that amounts to nothing. We can witness and accomplish nothing. Apart from Christ, we can't do anything, church. We can preach, but it may not amount to anything. Apart from Christ, we can't do anything. And we can't do anything about the work of Jesus Christ. We cannot do it. In verse 4, let's pick up this story in verse 4. It says this, Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. (coughs) Excuse me. Did not realize it was Jesus. Okay, so he called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And he said this, Throw your net on the right side of the boat and then you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to, unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. The disciples acknowledged their failure. They say, no, we haven't caught anything. And I like to imagine that if the disciples had lied here, um, Jesus would have disappeared or walked on the water to see their catch. But they told the truth. 
There's one author that says that failure is the most creative phenomenon of life. And that is true. If we did not fail, we wouldn't make any progress. Failure demands that we assess our past methods to see what we have done right or wrong. Failure helps us discard the obsolete and opens us to new ideas. Many years ago, there was a young man who ran for legislature in a large state, was badly defeated, and next he entered business, failed, spent 17 years of his life paying the debts of of a partner. He was in love with a woman to whom he got engaged, but she passed away. Re-entering politics, he ran for Congress, but was badly defeated. He then tried to get an appointment into the United States land office, but failed. He became a candidate for the United States Senate and was badly defeated. Two years later, he was again defeated. And it was one failure after failure and many setbacks and many setbacks and many setbacks to go. But he refused to give up and eventually became President of the United States. And his name was Abraham Lincoln. And failure oftentimes, is the way which God uses us (laughs) to accomplish His purposes in our lives. Our failures bring us face-to-face with weaknesses and inadequacies that lie within so that God's strength may be made perfect in our weaknesses. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Amen? And for those disciples, can you imagine someone that they hadn't fully they didn't fully recognize yet. I mean, they placed this, their trust in, they couldn't recognize him across from the shore. Placing trust in throwing their net on the other side of the boat. Aren't they the experts here? And somebody that they don't fully recognize is telling them like, hey, you ought to throw your boat on the other side. I mean, that's kind of, I don't know about you church, but I know human pride kind of gets in our way. Just being honest. For a second, can we all just be a little bit honest with this? Like, if you're an expert on something and you're somebody else telling you something to do something that you're like, man, we just spent a whole night fishing. You're, you're kind of your pride in your heart is like, man, I don't want to listen to that. Just be honest, you know, for a little bit there. It's like, you know, they're the experts in fishermen. And there's this guy that they can't recognize crossing the shore. He's like, yeah, throw it in on their side. But what do they do? They obey the words of Jesus despite their difficult night fishing. So why did they catch the fish, church? Because they just obeyed the words of Jesus. They caught the fish because they obeyed the words of Jesus. And the call there is that they would be made fishers of men. They're promised that. You're going to catch people. In a similar way, we obey that call to go and catch people. We're promised that as we obey Christ, as we walk with Jesus, we are promised we will be fishers of men. And could I just speak a word here, church? For just a minute. Sometimes we read, come follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. And sometimes, church, we leave the catching to the experts or professionals or trained missionaries. We're all missionaries. All of us are missionaries. Heralds of the Gospel, of Jesus, of His Spirit. We all have the same Spirit. And we are all the body of Christ. We are all the body of Christ, church. We are together a part of His family, the body of Christ. We are missionaries, heralds of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ. We are collectively together. We are better together and stronger together. Together, (laughs) church. We are all of this. We are to expel the darkness, shine our lights, and brightly for this town and city to see. Ephesians 4 reminds us this. So Christ Himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip 
his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And again, I just want to remind us in Matthew 4, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for who? People. People. The result of following Christ is that you and I will find people. We will find people. And very ordinary people without formal, really formal training from Jesus in those days. They followed Him for three years, but ordinary people. Ordinary folks. And He does this for three years. They learn from Him. And Jesus was a highly respected rabbi in those days. And in those days, this was an in-person job training experience for those disciples. They walked with Him. And literally the promise to this group of disciples, the imperative and to following Jesus is this, I will turn you into fishermen who will catch people. Jesus says fishers of people. He gets very personal with their line of work too. And in that word follow is in the original language, present tense imperative, live a life following me. Continue to live a life following me. And as soon as they hear it, church, you notice that they obey Jesus and they left their boat and their families. I mean, that would have been pretty difficult to do. Uh, and yet the power of Jesus' word is that when we come in here at Sunday and Sunday and whenever else, we'll have the willpower to, to leave what we should and follow what we ought to. And there's this natural progression here of the Christian life and the Christian follower. Come follow me. I will make you fishers of men. As we follow, we will find people. Be fishers of men as well. In verse 7, it says this. We're following along. Verse 7. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And notice this church, what happens. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord. He wrapped, his, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. Okay, this is not like, this is just, it's crazy. So just for a minute here, it says jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore about a hundred yards. hundred yards is a football field. So you can kind of get a good perspective here as to where Jesus is in this. So Peter's like, he gets out of the boat, he throws off his garment and he's like, can you imagine the scene? He's like getting out. He's jumping in the boat. He's like, that's how it sounded like. <laughs> you imagine this, like, just like plunges in the water. I imagine it's pretty cold there. I don't know, um, cold. And he's like, it's we're told it's right. We're told it's pretty much at night. Um, you know, and he just plunges in, and. It just goes, man. And uh, um, where was I? Verse 8? Yeah. Um, the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they had landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Anyone, we've said this, right? Anyone cook breakfast over coals with fish? Coals? Okay, we got some. we got some head nods. That's good. Um, and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon, notice Jesus invites them to bring what they've caught. It's almost like he wants us to use what we have. 
with him. Um, it's pretty cool. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Some people have, I just want to stop here for just a minute. Some people think there was an early uh, church commentator, his name was Jerome, and he's um, very well documented this uh, 153. Okay, why would the Bible tell us how many fish were in there? Well, actually, the Greeks in those, this is a little tidbit that um, you know may help think through this story. Actually, the Greeks, um, they, you know, in those days, thought that there was actually 153, this is actually documented, 153 different kinds of fish. And so, actually, the Greeks would have thought that that number, they would have read that. And if you're early, if you're reading this and you're in part of this and in the land in the day of the Bible, 153. Now, there's much more than fish in the sea. We know that, right? We know that nowadays there's way more school or kind of types of fish in those days. 153. And that would have meant that really, that if you're reading this, if there's 153, they thought that there was that number of different kinds of fish in the sea and that in the land of the day of the Bible. But it means that the gospel is for every tribe and tongue and nation. Jesus is for every tribe, tongue, and nation. For everybody, there is not one person who is excluded from the gospel. Just, just a little thought there. Um, as I've done just reading through this this week and done some research on this. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. In Luke 5, we're given a similar story of when Jesus was standing around the Sea of Galilee, and he tells Simon in Luke 5, verse 4, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. He says, he says this, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down my nets. And the nets are overflowing with fish and the boat was full. Yet in Luke 5, Peter says, it's, this is the interesting part of Luke 5. Peter says this, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. So you notice the difference here, church, what happens with Peter and John and Peter what happens in the early part of Luke. What do we find here? We see Peter the one being the one to jump out of the boat and swim as fast as he could toward Jesus. Things had radically changed for him. A big moment. Well, why? Why is this? Well, in the land of the Bible, you walked everywhere. Being in a hurry was actually culturally seen as a bit of a disdain. If you did things in a hurry, kind of looked a little bit weird and a little bit strange on somebody. Your life was kind of looked down upon. Like if you did things out of control, it actually in those in the land of the Bible, it looked a little bit strange. So just some of those little nuances here. So for Peter to jump out and start swimming toward Jesus, he abandons his pride and he simply bypasses that because he wants to get to Jesus as fast as he can. Despite all the cultural things at play here, with those disciples standing by, reputation perhaps, just his own pride, he just takes the plunge and he's like, I'm going to go see Jesus. I'm going to go after him. And as I've read this this week, I'm like, is that my response? 
Like, would I do that? Like, in a culture that kind of wants to push this following Christ kind of down, like, nah, you don't really need to be zealous for following Christ. You don't need to run after Jesus. Perhaps even our own circumstances or friends, maybe we're like, nah, don't do that. Kind of pushes it down a bit. Are we running hard to Jesus? Running hard toward Him? Are we, despite culture's severe winds blowing in our face, giving fully to running toward Jesus? Here's the good news, church. It's Peter who does this. It's the guy who's denied Jesus to his face three times, who's been overly zealous on many occasions, who's had such up and down like roller coasters as a disciple, who's the first person out of the boat throwing off his garment and jumping in and taking the plunge. It's Peter. And there he is. Peter. And there's Jesus preparing breakfast, already preparing breakfast for them. Fish and everything. And there's Jesus doing this for his disciples. Another little detail in this story. Do you notice it was around a charcoal fire? Another little detail in this story. What's awaiting Peter and the disciples on the shore is a charcoal fire. That detail can't be missed here. Because Peter had an interesting turn as a disciple Gospels, the Gospels tell us that he denied Jesus three times. And a servant girl begins to ask him, or just earlier on, just not too long ago to Peter, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? And she asked Peter that. And Peter said in John 18, I'm not. John 18, 18 says this, it was cold and the servants and the officials stood around the fire that they had made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them, warming himself. And now we find Peter and Jesus over another fire. Isn't God's grace just simply amazing? I mean, he had simply just denied Jesus over a fire, and here we find him again, Jesus around another fire. And if you're Peter over this fire, over this breakfast, you've got to be thinking, man, I really screwed up before. I can't believe, I, Jesus, I let you down the most. I let you down the most, Jesus. And yeah, but Jesus says, yeah, this is what forgiveness looks like. And Peter's like, man, I, don't, I just don't deserve this. But yeah, this is what grace and mercy looks like. <laughs> this is the heart of God we find in this account. In these accounts, all these accounts after Easter the people that Jesus has interacted with over the course of his resurrection. We know this from all these accounts. Luke in the Maus Road. We find this in doubting the Thomas account. Find on, on those on Maus Road, we find that Jesus personally appearing to the deniers, to the doubters, the confused, and the heartbroken. The kind of people that Jesus personally interacts with, church, that's good news. Like I don't know about you, but that's really good news that Jesus personally appears to those kinds of people. Emmaus, Emmaus Road in Luke 24, Jesus appeared to two people walking on a road who wondered what had happened. Thomas kind of gets a bad rap a bit, but he gets the invitation from Christ Himself to see the wounds of Jesus and he opens Himself to Thomas. And then to Peter, who a guy who had straight up denied Jesus three times and then Christ is all of a sudden breaking breakfast with him along the shore. So what do we glean from this passage, church? We see this 
that Jesus is very intent on meeting, meeting people ordinary places around a campfire. It's how John puts down this finishing pen as he's finishing up his gospel around a campfire. And I know this, I, I know I've said this over the last few weeks, but church, let's not dismiss the power of Christ in an ordinary conversation with people. I mean, Jesus is saying, bring over what you caught. Fire started. I, the coals are hot. The food's ready. In fact, let me serve you. And Jesus, hearing about their lives and their stories and their hopes, families, tell me about your life. We do the same. You know? We invite people into our lives and our homes around, around conversations. Never dismiss the power of ordinary conversations in our families, in our friends, around our homes. Never dismiss that. We are reminded of God's redemption throughout this passage. We're reminded how amazing it is that God would invite Peter to a meal at the end of this passage. Gary Burge is an author. He says like this, when Peter learned that it was Jesus who had done this, the fishing miracle worker Jesus, it is not by accident that he can, that he can, he can do the shore. He ran only to the one who could heal his memories, who could rewrite the terrible pictures and sounds of his past, the courtyard, the charcoal fire, the woman, the miracle demonstrated that despite Peter's failings, Jesus was still on his side, cooking a good meal for his friends and having fun filling nets with fish. It's good news. I truly pray today, church, I pray today that if anybody, one person, if there is just one, one soul, one individual who would leave here with just a little bit more of a taste of the mercy and grace of Jesus, then I consider that a tremendous privilege and hope. I pray that one person, I pray that somebody's, the grace and mercy of Jesus would knock somebody's socks off. Just one person. I pray that as we walk out of here, knowing that God's grace and mercy are so vast that nobody, nobody, I don't care who you are or what you've done, no one is outside the outstretched arms of God's redeeming love. Nothing is too impossible for God that He cannot redeem. Your life is worth redeeming and saving. Nothing is too impossible or too great that God cannot redeem. God is the one. There's a couple things I want to say. Three things about this. God is the one who provides opportunities to come our way. When we're thinking about fishing for people, <laughs> fishing, God's the one who provides opportunities to come our way. We simply join God in His work in the world. We simply join God already in what God is doing. And then we join Him in that process. God's already making a way. Jesus, and several parallels in the life of fishing for men. Notice Jesus supplied all the original fish and bread for this breakfast. When the disciples landed, that charcoal was already lit and the fish and bread were, were lying here. He also partnered with them. They invite the disciples, Jesus invites the disciples to bring the fish that they had just caught. And behind all of this is the hand of God already at work. Jesus has the fire going. He invites them to bring the fish. He invites them to bring the fish that they have caught. We operate by His grace and mercy. We operate according to what He has done. Not that we can do for ourselves, church. Not that we can, we can muster up on ourselves. But we already, we join God in what already God is doing. And we let Him lead the way. Jesus invites the disciples to bring the fish that they have caught into this. Beautifully suggests the way that God is at work with, with us. As I read through the Scriptures, I'm astonished by how God continues to use ordinary people to accomplish His extraordinary plan. We are co-laborers with Him. 
We are co-laborers with him in our circles, in our families, in our cities, in our townships. Human labor was involved in almost all of the miracles of Jesus. He, he brought people with him and he uses people like us, ordinary people, to accomplish that plan to reach people. And even when we think about the Lord multiplied the bread and the fish, the boy had to feed those multitudes on that day. He first sent the disciples searching through the crowd to see what they could supply. I wonder that all of this is of God. That God, who could easily do it all Himself, nevertheless gave us all a great privilege of doing it with Him. And He chooses to do it with us and to be co-laborers with Him. That's good news because God could do it Himself, but He chooses us to accomplish His purposes in the world. I don't know about you, but that's a good, that's, that's a good reminder for me. Number two is we fish for people. And what He invites you to do may be a very simple thing. You may have the opportunity to invite your neighbors for a cup of coffee and share your faith, you share your story, at least just get to know them a little bit more. And while that may feel, church, insignificant right now, while it may feel insignificant right now, when history has come to an end and we're all gathered on the shore with Jesus, that may be the very best thing you and I have ever done. The next invitation for a cup of coffee, front porch visit. Hey, let's grab lunch together. Hey, why don't you come over for dinner? That may be the greatest thing. We're all gathered again together in glory. That may be the greatest thing that you and I could ever done. Let's not miss those opportunities. Um, and not dismiss those small moments as well. We will see ourselves as tremendously privileged to work with God in the world and what He's doing in our world with us when partnering with us. Thirdly is this, church, God is always in the redeeming business and He extends grace and mercy to us. So might we all, church, run to Jesus full force? Or in this passage, and more contextually, swim to Jesus <laughs> more fully uh, and run to Him on a daily basis, church. Might we run to Him with courage and strength, knowing that He's already paving a way for us, church, and He is walking with us might we be fishers of people? I pray as a church, we'd be known as a church that fishes for people. And that we would be a church that extends the grace and mercy and hope that is only found in Jesus to our neighbors and our families and friends and beyond. Amen? Amen.